Chapter 22 of France and England in North America, Part 3. La Salle, Discovery of the Great West. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Theoden Humphrey. La Salle, Discovery of the Great West by Francis Parkman, Jr. 1680-1683 la salle painted by himself difficulty of knowing him his detractors his letters vexations of his position his unfitness for trade risks of correspondence his reported marriage alleged ostentation motives of action charges of harshness intrigues against him unpopular manners a strange confession his strength and his weakness Contrasts of his character. We have seen La Salle in his acts. While he crosses the sea, let us look at him in himself. Few men knew him, even of those who saw him most. Reserved and self-contained as he was, with little vivacity or gaiety or love of pleasure, he was a sealed book to those about him. His daring energy and endurance were patent to all. But the motive forces that urged him, and the influences that wrought beneath the surface of his character, were hidden where few eyes could pierce. His enemies were free to make their own interpretations, and they did not fail to use the opportunity. The interests arrayed against him were incessantly at work. His men were persuaded to desert and rob him. The Iroquois were told that he was arming the western tribes against them. The western tribes were told that he was betraying them to the Iroquois. His proceedings were denounced to the court, and continual efforts were made to alienate his associates. They, on their part, sore as they were from disappointment and loss, were in a mood to listen to the aspersions cast upon him, and they pestered him with letters, asking questions, demanding explanations, and dunning him for money. It is through his answers that we are best able to judge him and at times, by those touches of nature which make the whole world kin, they teach us to know him and to feel for him. The main charges against him were that he was a crack-brained schemer, that he was harsh to his men, that he traded where he had no right to trade, and that his discoveries were nothing but a pretense for making money. No accusations appear that touch his integrity or his honor. It was hard to convince those who were always losing by him. A remittance of good dividends would have been his best answer, and would have made any other answer needless. But, instead of bills of exchange, he had nothing to give, but excuses and explanations. In the autumn of 1680, he wrote to an associate who had demanded the long-deferred profits. I have had many misfortunes in the last two years. In the autumn of 78, I lost a vessel by the fault of the pilot, in the next summer, the deserters I told you about robbed me of eight or ten thousand livres worth of goods. In the autumn of 79, I lost a vessel worth more than ten thousand crowns. In the next spring, five or six rascals stole the value of five or six thousand livres in goods and beaver skins at the Illinois when I was absent. Two other men of mine, carrying furs worth four or five thousand livres, were killed or drowned in the St. Lawrence and the furs were lost. 
another robbed me of 3,000 livres in beaver skins stored in Michilimackinac. This last spring, I lost about 1,700 livres worth of goods by the upsetting of a canoe. Last winter, the fort and buildings at Niagara were burned by the fault of the commander, and in the spring, the deserters, who passed that way, seized a part of the property that remained and escaped to New York. All this does not discourage me in the least, and will only defer for a year or two the returns of profit which you ask for this year. These losses are no more my fault than the loss of the ship St. Joseph was yours. I cannot be everywhere and cannot help making use of the people of the country. He begs his correspondent to send out an agent of his own. He need not be very savant, but he must be careful. But he must be faithful, patient of labor, and fond neither of gambling, women, nor good cheer. For he will find none of these with me. Trusting in what he will write you, you may close your ears to what priests and Jesuits tell you. After having put matters in good trim for trade, I mean to withdraw, though I think it will be very profitable, for I am disgusted to find that I must always be making excuses, which is a part I cannot play successfully. I am utterly tired of this business, for I see that it is not enough to put property and life in constant peril but that it requires more pains to answer envy and detraction than to overcome the difficulties inseparable from my undertaking. And he makes a variety of proposals, by which he hopes to get rid of a part of his responsibility to his correspondent. He begs him, again, to send out a confidential agent, saying that for his part he does not want to have any account to render, except that which he owes to the court, of his discoveries. He adds, strangely enough for a man burdened with such liabilities, I have neither the habit nor the inclination to keep books, nor have I anybody with me who knows how. He says to another correspondent, I think, like you, that partnerships in business are dangerous on account of the little practice I have in these matters. It is not surprising that he wanted to leave his associates to manage business for themselves. You know that this trade is good, and with a trusty agent to conduct it for you, you run no risk. As for me, I will keep the charge of the forts, the command of posts and of men, the management of Indians and Frenchmen, and the establishment of the colony, which will remain my property, leaving your agent and mine to look after our interests, and drawing my half without having any hand in what belongs to you. La Salle was a very indifferent trader and his heart was not in the commercial part of his enterprise. He aimed at achievement and thirsted after greatness. His ambition was to found another France in the West, and if he meant to govern it also, as without doubt he did, it is not a matter of wonder or of blame. His misfortune was that in the pursuit of a great design, he was drawn into complications of business with which he was ill-fitted to grapple. He had not the instinct of the successful merchant. He dared too much, and often dared unwisely, attempted more than he could grasp, and forgot, in his sanguine anticipations, to reckon with enormous and incalculable risks. Except in the narrative parts, his letters are rambling and unconnected, which is natural enough, written as they were at odd moments by campfires and among Indians. The style is crude, and being well aware of this, he disliked writing, especially as the risk was extreme that his letters would miss their destination. 
There is too little good faith in this country and too many people on the watch for me to trust anybody with what I wish to send you. Even sealed letters are not safe. Not only are they liable to be lost or stopped by the way, but even such as escape the curiosity of spies lie at Montreal, waiting a long time to be forwarded. Again, he writes, I cannot pardon myself for the stoppage of my letters, though I made every effort to make them reach you. I wrote to you in 79, in August, and sent my letters to Monsieur de la Forest, who gave them in good faith to my brother. I don't know what he has done with them. I wrote you another by the vessel that was lost last year. I sent two canoes by two different routes, but the wind and the rain were so furious that they wintered on the way, and I found my letters at the fort on my return. I now send you one of them, which I wrote last year to Monsieur Thoreau, in which you will find a full account of what passed, from the time when we left the outlet of Lake Erie down to the 16th of August, 1680. What preceded was told at full length in the letters my brother has seen fit to intercept. This brother was the Sulpician priest Jean Cavalier, who had been persuaded that La Salle's enterprise would be ruinous, and therefore set himself sometimes to stop it altogether, and sometimes to manage it in his own way. His conduct towards me, says La Salle, has always been so strange, through the small love he bears me, that it was clear gain for me when he went away, since while he stayed, he did nothing but cross all my plans, which I was forced to change every moment to suit his caprice. There was one point on which the interference of his brother and of his correspondence was peculiarly annoying. They thought it for their interest that he should remain a single man, whereas it seems that his devotion to his purpose was not so engrossing as to exclude more tender subjects. He writes, I am told that you have been uneasy about my pretended marriage. I had not thought about it at that time, and I shall not make any engagement of the sort till I have given you reason to be satisfied with me. It is a little extraordinary that I must render account of a matter which is free to all the world. In fine, monsieur, it is only as an earnest of something more substantial that I write to you so much at length. I do not doubt that you will hereafter change the ideas about me which some persons wish to give you, and that you will be relieved of the anxiety which all that has happened reasonably causes you. I have written this letter at more than twenty different times, and I am more than a hundred and fifty leagues from where I began it. I have still two hundred more to get over before reaching the Illinois. I am taking with me twenty-five men to the relief of the six or seven who remain with the Sieur de Tonti. This was the journey which ended in that scene of horror at the ruined town of the Illinois. To the same correspondent, pressing him for dividends, he says, you repeat continually that you will not be satisfied unless I make you large returns of profit. Though I have reason to thank you for what you have done for this enterprise, it seems to me that I have done still more, since I have put everything at stake. And it would be hard to reproach me either with foolish outlays or with the ostentation which is falsely imputed to me. Let my accusers explain what they mean." Since I have been in this country, I have had neither servants, nor clothes, nor fare, which did not savor more of meanness than of ostentation. And the moment I see that there is anything with which either you or the court find fault, 
I assure you that I will give it up. For the life I am leading has no other attraction for me than that of honor. And the more danger and difficulty there is in undertakings of this sort, the more worthy of honor I think they are. His career attests the sincerity of these words. They are a momentary betrayal of the deep enthusiasm of character which may be read in his life, but to which he rarely allowed the faintest expression. Above all, he continues, if you want me to keep on, do not compel me to reply to all the questions and fancies of priests and Jesuits. They have more leisure than I, and I am not subtle enough to anticipate all their empty stories. I could easily give you the information you ask, but I have a right to expect that you will not believe all you hear, nor require me to prove to you that I am not a madman. That is the first point to which you should have attended, before having business with me, and in our long acquaintance, either you must have found me out, or else I must have had long intervals of sanity. To another correspondent, he defends himself against the charge of harshness to his men. The facility I am said to want is out of place with this sort of people, who are libertines for the most part, and to indulge them means to tolerate blasphemy, drunkenness, lewdness, and a license incompatible with any kind of order. It will not be found that I have in any case whatever treated any man harshly, except for blasphemies and other such crimes openly committed. These I cannot tolerate. First, because such compliance would give grounds for another accusation much more just. Secondly, because if I allowed such disorders to become habitual, it would be hard to keep the men in subordination and obedience, as regards executing the work I am commissioned to do. Thirdly, because the debaucheries, too common with this rabble, are the source of endless delays and frequent thieving. And finally, because I am a Christian and do not want to bear the burden of their crimes. What is said about my servants has not even a show of truth, for I use no servants here, and all my men are on the same footing. I grant that as those who have lived with me are steadier and give me no reason to complain of their behavior, I treat them as gently as I should treat the others if they resembled them. And as those who were formerly my servants are the only ones I can trust, I speak more openly to them than to the rest, who are generally spies of my enemies. The twenty-two men who deserted and robbed me are not to be believed on their word, deserters and thieves as they are. They are ready enough to find some pretext for their crime, and it needs as unjust a judge as the intendant to prompt such rascals to enter complaints against a person to whom he had given a warrant to arrest them. But to show the falsity of these charges, Martin Chartier, who was one of those who excited the rest to do as they did, was never with me at all, and the rest had made their plot before seeing me. And he proceeds to relate in great detail a variety of circumstances to prove that his men had been instigated first to desert and then to slander him, adding, those who remain with me are the first I had, and they have not left me for six years. I have a hundred other proofs of the bad counsel given to these deserters, and will produce them when wanted. But as they themselves are the only witnesses of the severity they complain of, while the witnesses of their crimes are unimpeachable, why am I refused the justice I demand, 
and why is their secret escape connived at? I do not know what you mean by having popular manners. There is nothing special in my food, clothing, or lodging, which are all the same for me as for my men. How can it be that I do not talk with them? I have no other company. Monsieur de Tonti has often found fault with me because I stopped too often to talk with them. You do not know the men one must employ here when you exhort me to make merry with them. They are incapable of that, for they are never pleased unless one gives free rein to their drunkenness and other vices. If that is what you call having popular manners, neither honor nor inclination would let me stoop to gain their favor in a way so disreputable. And besides, the consequences would be dangerous, and they would have the same contempt for me that they have for all who treat them in this fashion. You write me that even my friends say that I am not a man of popular manners. I do not know what friends they are. I know of none in this country. To all appearance, they are enemies, more subtle and secret than the rest. I make no exceptions, for I know that those who seem to give me support do not do it out of love for me, but because they are in some sort bound in honor, and that in their hearts they think I have dealt ill with them. Monsieur Plett will tell you what he has heard about it himself, and the reasons they have to give. I have seen it for a long time and these secret stabs they give me show it very plainly. After that, it is not surprising that I open my mind to nobody and distrust everybody. I have reasons that I cannot write. For the rest, monsieur, pray be well assured that the information you are so good as to give me is received with a gratitude equal to the genuine friendship from which it proceeds. And however unjust are the charges made against me, I should be much more unjust myself if I did not feel that I have as much reason to thank you for telling me of them as I have to complain of others for inventing them. As for what you say about my look and manner, I myself confess that you are not far from right. But naturam expellas. And if I am wanting in expansiveness and show a feeling towards those with whom I associate, it is only through a timidity, which is natural to me, and which has made me leave various employments, where without it I could have succeeded. But as I judged myself ill-fitted for them on account of this defect, I have chosen a life more suited to my solitary disposition, which nevertheless does not make me harsh to my people, though joined to a life among savages, it makes me perhaps less polished and complacent than the atmosphere of Paris requires. I well believe that there is self-love in this, and that, knowing how little I am accustomed to a more polite life, the fear of making mistakes makes me more reserved than I like to be. So I rarely expose myself to conversation with those in whose company I am afraid of making blunders, and can hardly help making them. Abbe Renaudot knows with what repugnance I had the honor to appear before Monseigneur de Conti, and sometimes it took me a week to make up my mind to go to the audience. That is, when I had time to think about myself and was not driven by pressing business. It is much the same with letters, which I never write except when pushed to it, and for the same reason. It is a defect of which I shall never rid myself as long as I live often as it spites me against myself, and often as I quarrel with myself about it. Here is a strange confession for a man like LaSalle. 
without doubt the timidity of which he accuses himself had some of its roots in pride but not the less was his pride vexed and humbled by it it is surprising that being what he was he could have brought himself to such an avowal under any circumstances or any pressure of distress shyness a morbid fear of committing himself and incapacity to express and much more to simulate feeling a trait sometimes seen in those with whom feeling is most deep are strange ingredients in the character of a man who had grappled so dauntlessly with life on its harshest and rudest side they were deplorable defects for one in his position he lacked that sympathetic power the inestimable gift of the true leader of men in which lies the difference between a willing and a constrained obedience this solitary being hiding his shyness under a cold reserve could rouse no enthusiasm in his followers he lived in the purpose which he had made a part of himself nursed his plans in secret and seldom asked or accepted advice he trusted himself and learned more and more to trust no others one may fairly infer that distrust was natural to him but the inference may possibly be wrong bitter experience had schooled him to it for he lived among snares pitfalls and intriguing enemies he began to doubt even the associates who under representations he had made them in perfect good faith had staked their money on his enterprise and lost it or were likely to lose it they pursued him with advice and complaint and half believed that he was what his maligners called him a visionary or a madman it galled him that they had suffered for their trust in him and that they had repented their trust his lonely and shadowed nature needed the mellowing sunshine of success and his whole life was a fight with adversity all that appears to the eye is his intrepid conflict with obstacles without but this perhaps was no more arduous than the invisible and silent strife of a nature at war with itself the pride aspiration and bold energy that lay at the base of his character battling against the superficial weakness that mortified and angered him in such a man the effect of such an infirmity is to concentrate and intensify the force within in one form or another discordant natures are common enough but very rarely is the antagonism so irreconcilable as it was in him and the greater the antagonism the greater the pain there are those in whom the sort of timidity from which he suffered is matched with no quality that strongly revolts against it these gentle natures may at least have peace but for him there was no peace Cavalier de la Salle stands in history like a statue cast in iron, but his own unwilling pen betrays the man and reveals in the stern, sad figure an object of human interest and pity. End of chapter 22